I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Effie Parks. I hope you got your Once Upon a Gene merch orders in. But if you didn't, I will open up the shop again sometime before Christmas. So I'll keep you posted. I don't know how trick-or-treating is going to work for anyone, if at all, this year. But I always like to remind people of the Teal Pumpkin Project. Because, you know, Halloween can be a very tricky time for parents and kids like mine. Placing a teal pumpkin alongside your other ones lets passerbys know that you're also handing out non-food items for trick-or-treaters. This could be anything from bubbles, stickers, glow sticks, whatever. It started as a food allergy safety project, but parents with kids who have feeding tubes, like Ford, have jumped on and piggybacked or slightly hijacked the project. So you can also add your residence to the teal pumpkin map and parents like me can make sure to find you on there and take our kids to go trick-or-treating. Inclusion just, it just feels good, doesn't it? So yeah, Teal Pumpkin Project, providing non-food treats, uh, placing a teal pumpkin in front of your home, and spreading the word. So please share the Teal Pumpkin Project with your friends and your family. You can even buy teal pumpkins. You can paint them. Target usually has the plastic ones there that you can reuse every year. So anyways, check it out. Uh, today, I have a very busy bee and fierce advocate on the show. She's the president of the International Pain Foundation. She's an Amazon best-selling author and a reality TV personality where she shares her powerful story about her life-changing events. Uh, she's received more than 20 accolades for her work in the chronic pain community over the years. She's a chronic pain educator, a patient advocate, and also a motivational speaker, probably among several other things, but you're going to be blown away by her story, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Barbie Ingle. Hello, Barbie. How are you? Hi, I'm doing okay. I've had quite the year uh, with my health but and the pandemic, but <laughs> doing okay, all things considered. I'm so glad to hear that. You're all over the place, and I was like, I think I'm supposed to know Barbie, so <laughs> I'm really glad to have connected to you because you're like all over my Twitter. Oh, well, thank you. I think I have been exposed at least to your podcast through Global Genes. So I, I knew who you were. So I'm glad we are now connected. <laughs> yes, for sure. So Barbie, why don't you give me just a little background about where this all began? I know at, let's go back to when you were a cheerleading coach. Sure. So uh, when I was coaching, I got endometriosis and uh, I was living all my dreams. My life was amazing. And I got endometriosis and started going through the process of getting that treated, which endometriosis is a rare condition. And um, my uterus was 
basically um, cells from my uterus were growing outside of my uterus and they were attaching to other organs and, and my stomach wall. So they tried all the non-invasive treatments and it got more and more invasive. And then finally, I uh, ended up having a full hysterectomy and I was like, "Whoa, I conquered the world. I'm great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> life, let's go you on thought with that life. was it. You were like, there, I, I did my hard thing. Move I did on. my hard, yes. And <laughs> everything was so easy up to that point. So I was like, okay, well, that was my, my life learning lesson. And then uh, a couple of years later, that was when I was 26, when I was uh, just um, before my 30th birthday, I was 29. I was um, in a parking lot and I saw this van coming towards my car and it wasn't stopping. And I twisted to like watch it thinking it was going to stop and it ended up not stopping and hitting me. And the way I was twisted, it just caused a lot of trauma. At first they said it was whiplash. I'd be fine in a couple days put me in a neck brace. Um, I wasn't fine, started physical therapy. And I started down this, this roller coaster ride odyssey of the health field. And I actually had a rare disease that was triggered by the accident. And not knowing that and it being a rare disease, most of the doctors that I saw never even knew, understood. They didn't piece the symptoms together. And so each different specialists, the heart doctor would look at the heart and the lung doctor would look at the lungs and dermatologists would be, you know, I don't know why your skin looks like that, but it it's just happens in some people, um, which I had full like blanching discoloration. No one really pieced it together. And uh, 43 doctors later, I finally got an answer. And that was that I had a neuroautoimmune disease that is quite rare. That is quite the odyssey. What's that rare disease called that was triggered after the car accident? It's called reflex sympathetic dystrophy. That's what I was diagnosed with. And at first it was regional. And so it's also known by like 20 other names because it is a rare disease. Every doctor thinks that they're discovering this new thing. Mm. Um, (laughs) And um, so there's like 20 names. So if it's in one region, they'll say... Uh, complex regional pain syndrome. And um, I have full body, although mine started regionally because the doctors did not know what I was facing and dealing with. They kept giving me surgeries and then I had complications with some of the surgical procedures. So with every surgery, I was actually making myself worse and spreading the disease to other areas of my body. And, And it started attacking to the point where I was in a wheelchair for almost seven years. This is like a scary movie. It, it was a scary time. How long did it take for you to go through the 43 doctors after the car accident and you just kept having symptom after symptom? How long did it take to finally get that last doctor that listened to you? Three years. Three years. Three years. This, this doctor, he was the first one to finally stop. Before he even saw me, he had me bring all my records. And at that time, I had three binders full of records. And at this time, I'm on my 10th binder of medical records. But at that time, he stopped. He looked at everything from all the other doctors and came in the room and said, I think I know what you have. And I said, well, I'm tired of doctors thinking. Uh, And he said, well, this is what I want to do. And it was the test for the condition or one of the tests for the condition. And it was a procedure, a medical procedure. 
And um, I said, you know what, I want to go home and study it and read about it and learn about it on my own first and make sure I'm okay with having this test done. And he said, okay. And about a week later, I was back in his office having the test done. And it, I was confirmed positive for RSD that day. Thank God for doctor number 43. Right. I hope you're still in contact with him in some capacity. He's actually not treating me though. It's the thing with rare diseases. He was able to recognize the symptoms and uh, know how to diagnose it. But he did not offer the treatments that I needed to start putting me into a remission. And so I ended up having to move on to other providers. But the look on his face when he saw me after I went into remission four years later, after he had diagnosed me, and he still treated me for for three of those four years. um, I just did. I just continued to decline during that time. When he saw me go from wheelchair to walking, and um, he actually saw me at a medical conference. He saw me on the elevator or the escalator, and and I was like, "Hey, doctor!" And he looked over, and he did not recognize me. And then when <laughs> I said my name, he his jaw just dropped. He could not believe how far I had come in that last year. That's got that's got to be a really special moment. It was absolutely amazing. So you have all these binders of your medical records and you're blazing through 43 doctors. At what point did you start? I mean, you're obviously like an advocate already before all of this big stuff that you're doing now. You're collecting all of your data, you're keeping it organized, and you're not taking no for an answer. You're moving through these doctors or you're kind of getting brushed aside from them and you're forced to look. Some of both. Uh, I had one doctor walk in the room and he said, I know what you're trying to do and you're not going to get away with it and turn around and walked out. Never did a physical exam, never did a test, never did anything, yet had pages of notes on me. He thought you wanted drugs. As if he did. So it, it really, so I had those kind of doctors and then I had doctors that really tried to help, but they were only looking at the isolated thing that they knew about. And because it's a rare disease, they did not know about it or understand it. Uh, I didn't really advocate for myself during those first three years until I got to Dr. 43 and, and said, I want to go home and study this on my own. Every doctor, physical therapist, every, whatever they threw at me and said, try this, I tried it. And it was actually making me worse. But I thought just growing up, you're supposed to trust the, the people in the white coats and that's what you're supposed to do not realizing that they all have specialties and that they all study different things in medical school. Now I know that. And that's one of the reasons why I talk to to other patients and caregivers about how to advocate for yourself, how to advocate for better laws, how to advocate for the the patient and, and be their voice. It was a learning process for me. And now that's why it's so important for me to share what I've learned so that other people don't have the journey that I had. So important. And especially coming from someone like you, who is such a force. But yeah, going back to the beginning, I think especially as females, if I may, I feel like we're trained to be polite and we're a little submissive to authority and and we nod and we smile and we don't necessarily know that maybe they're wrong. Maybe they're not smart. Maybe I'm not I can ask questions and maybe I don't have to take what I can get. All those things were thoughts that were going through my head. And also, as a cheerleader, you're taught to keep cheering, even if you're losing 50 to zero. 
And so to me, I was cheering myself on and listening to my coaches who were the providers. So I had that athletic mentality of what do you mean? No pain, no gain. Like any pain is, is no gain with my disease, but I had not known that. And I was going in with the athletic mentality of suck it up, do what your coach tells you. And that's how you win the game. Double-edged sword there for sure. Was there a point where you actually lost your hope? And if you did, what was the moment or what did you do that helped you come back for that, from that? I never lost total hope. I always had a little spark of hope, even at the lowest. But the worst moment um, having to do with hope was I had had my rib removed. They told me I was going to die if I didn't have my rib removed. So I rushed into surgery and had my rib removed. And the uh, surgeon made a mistake. And he left two bone spurs. One was going into my right lung and one was going was wrapped around my brachial plexus nerve bundle in my shoulder. And I started having lung collapses. And he was trying to tell me, sometimes after surgery, people have spontaneous lung collapses. This is something that can happen. And I didn't know to keep fighting and say, you're wrong. Look further. But then my dad flew into town to help. And my family was taking turns flying in. My dad came to town and he said, well, you know, this is the first day you're sitting up. Let's go to church and see, you know, if praying helps it, you know, let's go to church and get some spiritual hope. So we're sitting in church and something funny happened and everybody laughed and I started laughing and I had a full lung collapse where my lung laid on my heart. I was going down. My life flashed before my eyes and I thought I died. I mean, literally my life flashed before my eyes, like a thousand pictures of everything I'd been through in my life. In that moment, I learned that human connection is the only thing that matters and let the rest go. But I woke up after emergency surgery on my lung and, and still even after that, the doctor, that surgeon kept saying, I didn't do anything wrong, <laughs> but my dad said, we need to search further. And so even when my hope was lost, there was always some spark of hope from somewhere cheering me on. Tell me about that organization that your family kind of helped lead up to that you're a part of now. So every year growing up, my dad would have us do a family project and we would decide at Thanksgiving what our family project was going to be. And sometimes it would be going and doing Christmas carols at an old folks home or uh, serving food to the homeless. It wasn't very creative in all honesty. Things that, that normal people do to volunteer. In 2006, we lost my stepsister to the same condition that I have and in July of 2006. And so when Thanksgiving came around, um, I had new, newly been diagnosed and she had just passed away from the same thing. And my dad said, look, if Barbie's having this much trouble and Melanie had this much trouble, then there has to be other people having this much trouble. Let's do something to help those people. And that was Thanksgiving Day 2006. And by January 2007, they had started a nonprofit. At that time, I was wheelchair bound, bed bound. I was not able to do much. My face was the face of it. And it was called the power of pain because I learned that I had to dig deep and fight to make my life better and not stop. Like, like I said, 43 doctors just to get the first answer. So they said, let's do something for everybody. And after the first year, 
in service as Power of Pain Foundation, the board of directors had decided that this isn't just something that's isolated to RSD. This is something that many chronic pain patients go through. And so we need to open up our scope and, and work with all uh, chronic pain diseases and um, especially rare diseases that involve chronic pain. And so, so the, after that first year, it expanded. And then in, uh, in 2010, I joined the executive board. That's, I went into remission December 2009. 2010, I was asked to join the executive board. And then um, 2012, I was uh, elected president of the foundation. And that's the position that I've held since 2012. Uh, but every two years, it goes up for re-election. So every two years, I'm like, I could lose it. So I have to do a good job. because <laughs> Even though my family started the foundation, there's other board members and people involved in making it a success. And um, in 2015, we actually expanded. We had been working internationally for quite some time, um, but we changed the name to a Doing Business as International Pain Foundation, or as we say for short, IPAIN. And with iPain, we officially launched internationally and, and have uh, people in 14 different countries working on projects to help make their communities better. Mm, Barbie, dang. <laughs> so <laughs> that's amazing. I love your family. And it speaks to everybody in the rare disease community, right? That like nobody's going to do this for you. It doesn't already exist. If you want to get any headway on something, you're going to have to create it yourself. Absolutely. And I love that your dad saw that and was so worried about his daughter and his stepdaughter and just kind of made the shifts happen for this to grow in the way that it is. I suspect that there's no problems with getting you reelected because nobody wants to be the president as much as you do. Oh, thank you. I, I, I believe that this is my purpose. And when my life flashed before me, um, that the like human connection and doing something to better everybody's lives as best I can. And I know I can't do it alone. It has to be a team effort and it has to take people being energized, motivated and inspired all over the world to make a change in our healthcare system. And, you know, I did find that focusing specifically on my condition wasn't as helpful as looking at chronic pain and looking at rare diseases, you know, there's 7,000 rare diseases and about 150 of them that I know of so far involve chronic pain as a symptom. And that just built the community bigger. And there's also ultra rare diseases. Mine's just a rare disease. There's also ultra rare diseases. So I think it's important to help them get a spotlight so that we do get new treatment options and things that come down the pipeline because it might not help my rare disease, but it could help another person's rare disease. So it's definitely a passion of mine and has grown in, into my purpose of being a cheerleader. And instead of a physical cheerleader, I'm a cheerleader. <laughs> I think you're still a little, I think you're, you're both. Yeah. So how do you make this house that big? I mean, I think we're always kind of taught that we need to focus, right? And we need to kind of plan around our hub. How are you making the the web so wide and still being able to help this many people? That's awesome question. And instead of seeing it as a web, I kind of see it more as a puzzle. And each of us is a piece to that puzzle. And to make the picture correct, it needs all the pieces. So we have people that focus specifically on diseases and we have scientists and researchers doing clinical trials 
specifically on diseases. But when we come together as the whole picture, we can affect the whole earth, all the people, all the humans. And there's people needed at every single level. Everybody has to be their piece. I just have chosen to be more of a um, humanity piece of the puzzle, but everybody has their role. Everybody has their place. Even if this piece doesn't fit in with that piece because we decide to do it different or have a different shape or a way of connecting, doesn't mean that those two pieces aren't important. We need both. We need all. And there's billions of pieces to this puzzle. We have to click them into their place to make the most out of that piece, which when you step back, makes a whole picture. I love the way that you put that. And I think it's a really important reminder for people to know that one person makes a difference. One person being that piece in your puzzle makes a difference. And even though there might be this huge nonprofit or, you know, this big rare disease that has all this funding, your small little part in your ultra rare disease can make a can make all the difference. In the the puzzle piece is the same size, whether you're one individual or a large nonprofit. You still get the same size of piece of puzzle. You still have to click into that big picture at some level to make a difference, to be a part of it and to not just have your life be better, but humanity be better. I think this is one of the reasons you're so successful, Barbie, is because you're coming at this from not only just a personal perspective as a patient, but you know, you're so motivated by community and by connection. And I think that's the linchpin of our rare disease community in general. And Absolutely. I and I think that's why people love you so much. Yeah. And and I know that like some people go, well, I don't like Susie or I don't like that nonprofit. And I want them to shut down. You can't kick somebody out of their own disease. <laughs> uh, I wish you could, because I'd be like, kick me out first. But, <laughs> but so, so realize that, that what they're doing is just as important as what you're doing. And don't take it out on them. Put your efforts into positively affecting humanity. I love that. I love that. You don't have to necessarily like someone to work with them and you all have the same mission. Right. And you don't even have to work with them for as long as they're doing their work and you're doing your work, it's going to help create the big picture and all of it is needed to find solutions. So what are you most excited with right now with the International Pain Foundation? Oh my goodness. Well, uh, coming this this month starts Chronic Pain Awareness Month, and then through uh, November, which we call November, <laughs> those are like my biggest three months of the year. So today kicks off a lot of activity. Uh, we also have like educational events, webinar coming up at the end of the month, and and then we have daily facts that are going out um, through the iPay networks, and then November is my baby. And I, I created the word November and the project back in 2009. I um, had gone to Philadelphia for a doctor appointment and I was flying back and everything on the plane was pink for, pink, for Pinktober, uh, breast cancer awareness. And I said, we need this for my disease and I want to paint the world orange. And um, by the time I got off the plane, it was a six hour, almost a six hour flight. I had taken napkins from the flight attendant and started writing my plan and uh, made a whole project. And now this past year, we had over 40 million interactions wow. um, on social media during the month of November for November. It's a daily event 
Um, some years we've given prizes for participation. Some years we do one to two. This year we're doing two spotlights each day on different conditions. And more than half of the diseases uh, that are being spotlighted are rare diseases. And, and we put out facts and information about those diseases. And then we also have this year, it's, um, normally it's in person. This year it's online because of COVID. Uh, but we're doing the International Pain Summit and um, on November 14th. And um, so I'm helping coordinate that and preparing for that. And I'm actually going to be a speaker this year instead of a host. So I'm glad to be presenting. I haven't presented at the summit since 2015. So it's been almost five years. So I'm, I'm coming back and doing my presentation, which a lot of people are like, we want you to speak again. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm coming back with my husband, Ken, or Ken and Barbie. And uh, uh, yes, I was going to get to Ken and Barbie. <laughs> we're, we're doing a, a session on empowerment for patients and caregivers and tips and tools that, that people can use in their everyday life. Oof. First of all, I love puns. So I am so with you on all of the things you're creating. Tell everyone how they can register for, for that summit. Sure. You can go to internationalpain.org, which is the iPain website. And um, right on the homepage, there's a, a button that says, how can I get involved? And there's, I think, three or four different ways listed right there on the website. And the summit is, I believe, number one. And so that summit is uh, registration is going on now. And if you register before November 1st, then you will receive a pop box, which is a box of surprises. They're going out the first week in November to all the people that register before November 1st. And um, it's going to be a box full of goodies and surprises and information that is all tied into what's going on on the day of the summit. Very cool. And who doesn't like presents? Right. Everybody. So you don't have to be involved in the Pain Foundation at all to necessarily go to this, especially for the title of that particular webinar for being an advocate. Absolutely. Um, anybody can can go. And I actually, I, I have a focus on the patients and the caregivers, but I also make it a point to what I call plant seeds. And that's reaching out to the public and sharing the, the stories, the voices, not just my own, but other rare disease advocates, patients, stories, caregiver stories, so that people who would not normally hear in conventional ways until it affects them hear about rare disease, chronic pain, different treatment options. And, and we share that through a variety of ways. Right before COVID, we had just signed a contract to work with Grand Canyon University, and um, we're going to be doing uh, influencer work with them to raise awareness about chronic pain and rare diseases, but that got put on hold for now. Um, but we try to reach people that would never hear our, our journeys and our stories so that maybe they don't need that information today, but they were at that hockey game and they decided to come by our table, pick up some information or stop and listen to one of the patients or caregivers there telling their story. And then in three years or five years or whenever they need it, all of a sudden that seed was planted and they can go, oh yeah, there was that thing at the, at the hockey game or the baseball game. And I, that was eye pain. Yeah, yeah. And, and go back and, um, and have the resources and tools that I didn't have in the beginning so that their search when they need it is there and they can pass those tools on to anybody else that that they need to pass it on to so those seeds become trees at some point 
Mm, yes, my mom's been talking about planting seeds her whole life, so I totally feel you on that. I love that. And, you know, just to bring it back down, like, you never know, right? Like, you just got hit by a car, and then, bam, here you are with a rare disease that, you know, was initiated from that. And sure, there are rare diseases, but what do they say? Like, one in less than 10 people in the world have a rare disease. So I think people forget that we are walking among you. And, you know, it's not always super visible or like this horrible picture that you would see on Google that that exists around you and that you should be aware of your peers. Absolutely. And I've documented almost everything that I've been through. And I will normally when I'm not doing well, I'll post pretty pictures of myself <laughs> from times when I was doing well as a way to, to cheer myself on and and have hope that I can get back to that moment or make a new moment that was similar. And then I have the the pictures and the videos for when I'm doing well, that then I can share the bad times. And so I kind of do it opposite, but I, I have heard from, from other patients like, why do you only post pretty pictures? I'm like, oh no, I, I post other pictures too. I just need to not just see all the negative all the time. I live that every day in my life. So so when I have a picture where I feel like I look pretty, and that's obviously subjective, but <laughs> I, I post those pictures and, and, and I use a lot of positive quotes from other patients that I know or, or somebody that is in my life that I like really look up to. So when I'm having my worst moments, I'm posting pretty pictures and positive quotes. And so a lot of times people don't even realize Barbie's having a tough time right now. Because what they're seeing is this positive image. And really, there's so much going on behind the scenes. I'm just trying to pump myself up. Yeah, I really, I really love that. And I admire that both ways. And just figuring out what way one, you know, has to deal with things to give them hope again is different for everyone. Yes. And I really love that. And I think all of your pictures are pretty, Barbie. Aw. And I do think that is a really good reminder, though, you know, you see someone like you who's out in her cute dress and her heels with her handsome husband and she's going to all of these things and she's speaking and she's this powerful force in the advocacy world and you forget that everything probably hurts right now. And and one thing that I have found for me, uh, when I can create endorphins in myself, I feel better. I still have pain, but I still can feel better and do better. So I try to find moments where I can have endorphins. And for me, getting up and being in front of people gives me endorphins. Even if I was on stage and I was in, like you could take me wheeling out of surgery and I'm still groggy from anesthesia, but you turn on a camera and I will start smiling and create endorphins. <laughs> you're like you're like Elle Woods in Legally Blonde. Yes, it's it's my happy it's my happy moments, and so it's kind of like trying to create my own um, pain medication in my body without having to use pain medication and when I don't need to. So, <laughs> well, I think the mind the mind is very powerful, and especially your intentions behind it. So I yes. love that. So any anything that I can do to create endorphins, I don't like to watch anything negative. I don't like violent movies. I don't like violence in general. I like positive, happy, fluffy, rainbows, zebra. <laughs> oh, I love zebras now, but that's for a whole new reason. You know, anything that's like Care Bears and 
happiness and sunshine yes. is, is all the things I like to keep in my life. And I know that because I have negative things going on with my health and the challenges I face, I, I know that I have enough of that. So I try to attract positive and be positive. Well, it shows, Barbie. And I mean, the empire around you in so many different ways is following you because of, I mean, the inspiration word is thrown around so much, but it is so meaningful in the rare disease community when there's someone like you who's an advocate for so many people. So I love the way that you direct that. Thank you. And I try to be mindful and share. There's so many of us that have great stories and and great inspiration and hope and so many people that in the rare community that they're rare themselves yet they're reaching out and supporting me and I'm able to reach out and support them and it, that community that's been built in that network has just been an incredible positive force in my life and I I just love my my rare disease family my zebras yes same here same here you've also written like eight or so books. Mm -hmm. Are they all available on Amazon? Are they available in bookstores as well? Uh, they are all available on Amazon. All of them are in the Library of Congress. And any bookstore has the ability to order it. So if you go in and ask for it, they can order it. Some Barnes and Nobles carry it. And um, we also, um, I help produce a magazine called iPain Living. And that is also available in uh, bookstores. And so yeah, nine books. I co-authored three of the nine. And then I also work on the magazine. So awesome. And one is a children's book. Correct? And one's a children's book. Cool. And I have a, a niece since that book was created. She's the only niece. There's seven nephews and one niece. And now she's old enough to say, Aunt Barbie, I want to do a follow up book about how we take <laughs> Aunt Barbie to the beach. <laughs> yes, which which um, we're going to the beach for the first time in hopefully as, as long as I'm still well enough. We'll go um, in, in November with her. And so we're going to write a children's book about it after the experience. And um, my brother's the uh, illustrator of the book. And so uh, we're going to do a follow-up book. Yeah. Awesome. I can't wait to read it. It sounds like you have such a wonderful family. And I'm so glad you have had that foundation of support. It's really cool. And they're all involved in their own little way, which is really magical. Absolutely. All of my family has been extremely helpful and supportive. And I know there's other people out there, including some of my best friends, that their families don't understand or they're not supportive. I even had trouble with my my husband's family a little bit, especially in the beginning, because one of the nurses in his family was saying that my disease was psychological, not an actual real disease. But um, she wasn't a specialist in this rare disease, so she didn't know, she didn't understand. And um, But they believed her because she had the the nurse credentials and I didn't. But now it's been time and we've done setting expectations and went back and re-educated the family members. And it's a lot different now to have the support of his family and my family. And I know there's patients out there that don't have support from any, from or they feel like they don't have support from anyone. And so that's why it's helpful and helpful to have other patients and caregivers supporting other patients. Yes, I hope anyone feeling like that uh, finds you and reads some of your books and connects with you on that level. And yeah, especially with pain, with physical pain being on top of everything that's involved, you can imagine where your emotional well-being would go. Yeah, well, and one of the things that happens when you have such severe pain 
is that you isolate. And then if people don't understand you, especially the people that are supposed to be on your team and cheering for you, uh, such as a family member, you isolate even more. And that's the last thing we need. We need those endorphins. We need to socialize and we need to talk and we need to share. And sometimes I, I, I mentor a lot of patients and a patient, you can always tell when a patient is new to being mentored because they will just spill their guts because for the first time they're being heard or they feel like they're being heard for the first time. So they have everything to say and I just let them get it all out and then go back and try to give them some tools and ideas and things that may or may not work, but at least it's an idea. Hey, what about going in this direction? If you don't like that, it at least might spark an, an idea for you to take in another direction. But listening to them first is so important. Yes. I, what is it that Oprah says? Oprah says one of the most important things is, do you see me? Do you hear me? And does what I say matter? Well, I really appreciate your honesty, and I'm so happy that you've shared all of your medical history with everyone and your journey from day one. It's it's really impactful, and I'm so proud that you're in this rare disease community and just forging on. And uh, I'm looking forward to sharing about your summit and all of your resources, considering your books and your magazines and your TV show that we haven't talked about. Is there anything else that you would like to leave with our audience today? I would like to say, as my closing thought, that there is hope and great reason for it, and there is help available. You just have to reach out. Well, I'll connect everything that you have said today in our show notes. And, you know, you're a master on social media, and anyone who's connected to you can also share this because super important. Barbie, thank you so much. Thank you, Effie. I'm so glad to be here, and I'm very proud of you and all you're doing with your podcast. Great job. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.